0: Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this episode, Jennifer Campbell walks us through her end-of-term project for her 19th-century graduate seminar, both from her point of view as well as her students. I love YouTube. YouTube is amazing.
1: Yes, uh, I've, I've watched a fair bit. Ah, that's my primary form watching things.
0: That's
2: your primary form?
1: Yes. For example, people have Spotify?
2: Yes. I have
1: YouTube Prime.
3: I watch YouTube a lot because it's very accessible and it gives you access to so many different things.
0: I have been known to, you know, uh, for my own edification, especially in, you know, the last year of undergrad, watching YouTube videos on, you know, these music theory concepts that I didn't even begin to understand.
2: YouTube. The now ubiquitous video platform was created in 2005, acquired by Google in 2006, and is currently the second most visited website on the internet in the United States, the most accessed being Google itself. According to SEMrush.com, which uses its own analysis tool for website traffic, the data collected on YouTube in January 2021 shows over 4.2 billion U.S. visits to the site, with approximately 81% of those clicks occurring from desktop laptop hardware and 19% from mobile devices. It seems like everyone has watched or is watching something on YouTube, and even if you yourself might be a naysayer, you're probably aware of people in your circle—family, friends, and especially students—who are enthusiastic YouTube consumers and perhaps content creators. But this podcast isn't a rehashing of YouTube's evolution and popularity. This episode unpacks a pedagogical experiment, an experiment that has YouTube, music theory, and a graduate seminar in late 19th century music as the backdrop. During fall 2021, I taught a music theory seminar for graduate students titled, Techniques and Transformations, Analysis of 19th Century Music. Although this was an advanced special topic seminar, typically geared towards graduate students in music theory and composition, I knew the student population that semester would represent a range of programs, including masters and doctoral students in vocal and instrumental music performance, conducting, music history, and ethnomusicology. To get us started, I invited Dr. Richard Bass, professor emeritus at the University of Connecticut, and author of several articles on late romantic harmony, to speak with the class via Zoom. And he articulated helpful insights on how students could approach music from this chromatically rich period.
0: First, no matter what anyone tells you, and they will tell you, there is no one approach or specific method that will reveal everything there is to know about harmonic practice in this music. So you need to develop a blended set of approaches that you can apply in a logical and orderly way. Second, it's pretty clear from what composers of the period said and did that they saw themselves as part of an ongoing Western tonal tradition. They certainly sought to incorporate innovations and expand their harmonic palette. But they were not looking to replace tonality with a completely new compositional system. And then finally, given that mindset, it's important in analyzing this music to to begin by explaining as much as you can through uh, conventional tonal analysis. And then after that, consider the uh, outlining harmonic content from a broader range of perspectives. And so the goal of a class like this, in my view, is to give you um, a set of tools for doing that.
2: Bass's words proved especially valuable once students began work on their culminating projects, which they embarked upon at the outset of the semester rather than closer to the end. While designing the course, I had begun rethinking the final written analysis paper and class presentation on a piece of the student's choosing, both commonly due at the end of the semester. I firmly believe in the practice of analyzing and writing about music and also in helping students work through the writing process in a methodical way, from topic selection to final product due at the end of the term, For this course, however, I decided to change it up and I announced in the first class the immediate need to find a piece from the 19th century to analyze because the paper would be due at midterm. Additionally, paper submission was only phase one of ultimately a three-step project. Post-midterm, while I read through the papers and provided feedback, the students would transform the work into YouTube videos, which meant the papers needed revised and edited into scripts prior to video creation. Here's the catch. I wanted a specific style of video, one that was approximately 10 minutes long and in the vein of current popular music theory YouTubers. Ultimately, I wanted each student to not just share a heady paper analysis or manufacture entertaining content, but to craft something that could breach the chasm that complex chromatic art music and academic papers often failed to cross. Essentially, I was requiring that students insert themselves into a middle ground of both visual media and music analysis by producing an edutainment-style product that doubles as public music theory. Their reactions varied.
3: I guess my original thought was, holy crap, like, this is not something that's in my ballpark. My initial reaction was, oh, God.
2: I was only worried because I just hate recording myself.
3: I was kind of excited. I did not like it very much, to be honest. My first reaction was like, oh, damn
1: it. (laughs) I thought it was pretty cool. I, I watch a lot of YouTube, <laughs> and so to uh I, but I've never thought about like how to contribute or do anything, and so I feel like most of the time, if a project can get you to do something like that uh, it's it's a pretty cool thing, and it's nothing that I've ever heard brought up in a class before. so I thought it was awesome.
2: I'll return to what I mean by edutainment and public music theory in just a bit, but first, I want to examine the evolution of select scholarship on music theory, pedagogy, and YouTube a little more closely. In my research, I unearthed an abundance of scholarly articles and studies about YouTube and the educational environment in fields such as communication, computer science, and medicine. There are significantly fewer studies in music. One of the inaugural articles about YouTube and music pedagogy is found in the 2010 volume Pop Culture Pedagogy in the Music Classroom. In her chapter, Global Connections via YouTube, Internet Video as Teaching and Learning Tool, Ethnomusicologist Hope Monroe-Smith focuses on the benefits and effectiveness of integrating YouTube videos into her World Music Undergraduate Classroom Lectures, something that 12 years and one pandemic later we no longer need explained to us. Even so, Smith's contribution serves as a milestone that documents a dramatic shift in the availability of music-related visual resources, their potential to enhance learning and teaching in the classroom, and the ethics surrounding the inclusion of this material. At the end of her chapter, Smith states, quote, As educators, our challenge is to fully realize the various pedagogical possibilities of Internet video websites. Otherwise, we are simply updating older audiovisual formats with newer technology, much as CDs replace cassettes and LPs, end quote. And now, of course, CDs have themselves been replaced by digital music and streaming services. Smith concludes her piece by advocating for projects in which students create YouTube channels and upload and comment on original content, such as their own performances, compositions, or reflections on course-related material, which was certainly a sage prophecy of things to come. In the field of music theory pedagogy, the years 2012 to 2014 saw the emergence of articles and book chapters explicating the concept of the flipped or inverted classroom, a topic to which YouTube is tangentially connected. The premise of flipped classroom instruction hinges on content being provided to students before class sessions, which meant pioneering music theory pedagogues sought out and acquired skills in video development and production. Greg McCandless and Anna Stefan Robinson's 2014 article, Video and Podcasting Tools for Blended, Flipped, and Fully Online Music Theory Courses in Music Theory Pedagogy Online 4, touts the value of such methods and offers practical technological advice to help instructors create their own podcasts, screencasts, and videos. The bibliography of Anna Galboy's chapter, Teaching Music Theory with Video, in the 2018 Norton Guide to Teaching Music Theory, offers a valuable summary of flipped classroom and music theory pedagogy articles from the earlier 2012-2014 period. And the article itself delves further into video integration, including its uses for flipped class instruction, remediation, in-class engagement, post-class review, and assessment or feedback. YouTube receives mention in both essays, but mainly as a way to enhance recorded video content through YouTube's annotation function, or as a source of entertaining or humorous videos that could spark class discussion on a topic. Also, the scope of both essays is focused on helping the instructor navigate video technology, there is little to no mention of students developing videos themselves. Although research about inverted classrooms, video microlectures, and teaching music theory online has steadily trickled in, During late summer of 2021, I found myself with a void of information on student video creation and its effectiveness in the music theory classroom experience. I had a science journal article titled, Video Clips for YouTube, Collaborative Video Creation as an Education Concept for Knowledge Acquisition and Attitude Change Related to Obesity Stigmatization, an article that at least offered proof of concept when it came to student video creation as a viable mechanism for learning and information retention. And I could also, to some extent, draw upon the instructor-related music theory pedagogy literature about creating my own lectures for a class and convert that material into a helpful guide for students. Even so, I felt I needed more justification before initiating my YouTube video as final paper presentation, Grad Class Experiment, and I turned to recent writings on the topic of public music theory. What is the definition of public music theory? It is, as I understand it, what music theorists do when they generate content for non-music theorists' specific audiences. When music theorists create program notes, give pre-concert lectures, and do community interactive types of projects, they exemplify what is meant when academics say that they are working in the public music theory sector. Professor J. Daniel Jenkins is a current expert and has a body of recent publications on the topic, two of which were accessible when I was revising the format of my class's final presentation. Jenkins published his essay towards a curriculum of public music theory in the online volume of Engaging Students, Essays in Music Pedagogy, Volume 5, in 2017, and he wrote the Music Theory Pedagogy and Public Music Theory chapter in the Routledge Companion to Music Theory Pedagogy, available in 2020. In his earlier essay, Jenkins remarks, quote, It became clear that were he alive today, Schoenberg would have embraced blogs, podcasts, YouTube, and other novel opportunities available in our current media landscape. It seemed wherever I looked in media, both old and new, examples emerged that were geared to or accessible to a general audience that served to help listeners better understand a musical work, musical phenomena, compositional process, or musical effect, end quote. Jenkins describes how he designed and taught a graduate course titled Public Music Theory. He provides the foundational reasons of why and how music theorists engage with the general public, and he recounts projects that his class completed, including program notes, blogs, podcasts, and videocasts. He also articulates the, quote, positive takeaways and lingering challenges, end quote, involved with this type of course. It was this particular article that supplied fruitful evidence validating a YouTube video experiment in my own class. But even more helpful was Jenkins' later essay, Music Theory, Pedagogy, and Public Music Theory. This Routledge Companion chapter goes into further detail about video recordings for pre-concert lectures, how to create them, and how to use them. Jenkins also discusses the problem that can arise in the public music theory world if authors approach it from the perspective of being experts pouring knowledge into empty vessels of audience members cautioning the need to be careful that public music theory initiatives are dialogic and not merely one-sided. Jenkins' insights validated my own momentary shift from in-person paper presentations to video creations, specifically because YouTube reaches a general, albeit international, audience, and the platform allows for a dialogical interaction if the comment and reply functions are enabled. Thanks to Jenkins, I found a satisfactory rationale supporting the project. The problem was that I had no idea how to create a YouTube video myself. I needed help. Enter friend and colleague, Dr. Aaron Hines. Heinz teaches courses on music business, new media, and a host of other things at my institution, and he agreed to guest lecture and assist the students in my class with their technological work. I'm here talking with my colleague, Aaron Hines, and we're going to chat about the idea of turning a final presentation into a YouTube video. Aaron, I invited you to come to my class, and I told you what my idea was. What was your initial reaction when I said, I want students to create YouTube videos as their final presentations?
4: Well, generally speaking, I, I think any sort of um, any sort of way that we can implement technology into the class these days is a good thing. Um, it has to be done smartly, and I think this is being done smartly. Uh, but I, I think... Um, it's a good way to get students out of the rut of essay exam, essay exam, essay exam, which is just something that everyone, you do in every other class. Um, so finding a way to, I think that was my initial thought, was finding a way to um, change things up, make it have a different type of assignment. And uh, Overall, that was, that was my reaction, was just, hey, it's, it's something different. And it's also something that I have done a lot myself.
2: Have you had students do YouTube presentations or you mean you have created your own YouTube
0: presentations? I've
4: created my own presentations a lot. Um, And so that's that's um, I've done a lot of that for my own classes, especially over the last two years because of the pandemic. Um, So it's something that I'm fairly familiar with. And I have had students do some of their own as well.
2: Heinz offered some helpful information that could get anyone started transforming their papers into video presentations. In our post-semester interview, he recapped some of his advice about recording and editing videos. How about recording the video? You gave the students a couple of ways in which they could record the video. What were some of your suggestions?
4: Um, An easy one nowadays is to do a Zoom room with yourself and, and for your presentation part, record that. Uh, as far as to kind of go back a question with the, with their smartphone, they can record a video of themselves on their phone, um, giving their presentation. I've had students do that for certain projects in my other classes. and um, that's worked out fine. You kind of have to get you kind of have to recognize that it's maybe not the most professional of, of things when they're kind of using a selfie cam, but it gets the job done. Um, but using uh, like a, a Zoom Room to send the recording to yourself uh, using the smartphone. Um, if they have a laptop, there are built-in apps in the, like QuickTime and things like that that uh, where you can easily uh, create a video. Um, a little bit easier on Mac than it is on Windows.
2: My challenge to the class, though, was not just to video themselves doing the presentation we had talked a good bit about uh, music theory videos on YouTube and specifically related to things like neo-Romanian theory uh, and topics that were related to what we were studying regarding late 19th century music. You helped dismantle some of our confusion about how do you insert things like text and, mm-hmm. and other videos. Can you provide us with some information here about what you said to the class, about ways to fancy your video up?
4: Well, the couple of the things that I mentioned, Well, for the first thing is just watching those videos and taking notes and seeing how do they transition from one thing to the next, what are the, some of the visual language, that, what's some of the visual language that they use. Um, more specifically, uh, I talked about you know using text on screen to emphasize and to to pinpoint specific concepts is a big thing. Um, using visual aids to kind of get across using that whether it's a static image or if it's if it's like a video clip um, that's a big big tool in the the arsenal so to speak of of people who make these types of videos and also. Um, Really just using visual language to pinpoint and guide the listener's attention is kind of the overarching.
2: Absolutely. But how do you do that? What are the mechanisms? I mean, because I think everybody in the class, when you were speaking, everyone was fine when you were just talking about recording and how Mm -hmm. to record the video. And then when it shifted into how to insert something, there was a different level of comfort There, some, I could tell that some people were like, yeah, I, I can do that. I've done that. Mm-hmm. And there was a level of comfort there. And then others, their eyes got somewhat round and uh, mm. almost they freaked out on me a little bit.
4: So the, I'll start with the one that I think is the easiest thing that you can generally do to, to, um, to play up a video uh, to, or to to spice up a video is text, text on the screen. Mm-hmm. And any video software is going to have the ability for you to add text to a screen. Any video editing software. Um, I recommended a program, I, I, I'm blanking on the full name, but I believe it's called Adobe Rush. Mm-hmm. That is a simplified version of Premiere Pro. Um, and it's it, it's, you do have to have some familiarity with the tools and you have to if you need to watch tutorials and and do that. So at at a basic level, there's going to be some learning of tools involved. Um, But any video editing software can have the basic ability to add text to the screen.
2: Does that mean like that iMovie has that ability? Yes,
4: I'm sure that it does. Okay. So yeah, it's a matter of uh, making a video lecture, eventually circles down to you're going to have to learn an editing software of some kind.
2: And the editing software is Adobe is great. Uh, Adobe Rush, as you say, is more simple than Premiere Pro, mm-hmm. than iMovie. Uh, any others that are off the top of your head?
4: There's a free one, but it's a little complex uh, the, um, called DaVinci Resolve. Okay. It's a little more, I mean, it's a fully featured professional program. There's a free version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's another one. Um, but DaVinci Resolve, Adobe Premiere, oh, uh, Final, Cut, oh, right. is, Final is on, Cut is on Apple's. That's also a fully-featured professional editing software.
2: Armed with guidance and support from Heinz, students spent the second half of their fall term revising their papers and crafting them into 10-minute YouTube videos. I should clarify that students also completed additional class preparation, readings, and short-term assignments during that part of the semester. So this experiment doubled as a lesson in project management as students balanced short-term daily and weekly work with the longer-term paper presentation requirements. The question might arise, why only 10 minutes? The time parameter length comes partially from Anna Galboy's article that I mentioned earlier, in which she writes, quote, Guidelines for the inverted classroom suggest limiting the focus of each video to a single subject and limiting the length to 5 to 10 minutes, end quote. I also consulted non-music specific sources, such as the book The YouTube Formula, which offers insight on how to construct engaging videos and retain audience attention. And lastly, I watched a significant number of music theory related videos and took notes on how long I tended to stay interested. I determined that I watched 10 to 15 minute videos in full, especially if they included graphics, text, embedded videos, scrolling scores, and or animation. In other words, I myself became seduced by edutainment. The term edutainment dates back to at least 2001 when an education article by David Buckingham and Margaret Scanlon was published. In it, the authors defined edutainment as a, quote, hybrid mix of education and entertainment that relies heavily on visual material, on narrative or game like formats, and on more informal, less didactic styles of address, end quote. Although Buckingham and Scanlon were educators evaluating magazines for young children, I think the label fits the style of music theory video that currently tends to draw in the most viewers on YouTube. There is depth of content, but is compressed into 10 to 15 minute video segments and accompanied by a host of visual and musical interjections that highlight key points. This is a potential middle ground space between full class-length recorded lectures and a short five-minute micro-lecture on a single topic, and it is the space that I was hoping students would successfully inhabit. After all that build-up, you are probably ready to ask, well, how did it go? In short, 11 students successfully created video presentations about their analysis papers, and 11 students provided their consent to allow use of audio and video from their projects and or to participate in recorded interviews that could be used for this podcast. Let's hear some feedback from them. So how much time do you think it took you to do the analysis of your piece? Uh, almost 50 hours. 50 as in five zero. Yeah. So about how long do you think it took you to analyze the piece? Like, do you have a number of hours? What do you what do you think?
3: Well, here's the thing. So the things that were easy to analyze, I analyzed them in two days. I basically sat on the piano, I played the chords and it's just two days for 40 minutes, 45 minutes each day. And then that's that's easy. The things that were difficult to analyze, the pages that there is no tonality. I was, you know, reanalyzing them every single day until I finished that paper. So I mean, it was, it really. There, I couldn't really give you an exact uh, time frame for how long the analysis took me because I'm sure if I go back now, I will just find something different or think it differently. So yeah, it's an evolving analysis process, I guess.
1: I guess all in all, it was the analysis took a couple weeks. I'd say probably over over that time, probably around ten to twelve hours of of really sitting down with it um, and trying to find the sections that I wanted to really focus on because it's so dense that it took a bunch of listens. To to really understand even, you know, remember how it goes, uh, let alone like what's going on. Um, So it probably took me about, yeah, like probably around 10 to 12 hours over the course of a couple weeks. And then as far as making the script for the video, um, I kind of just, I took my paper and just sort of started cutting away at it. Um, Highlighted sections that I felt like were kind of like the tent poles of the paper, like I need to get from here to here and here to here, and then just how quickly can I do that in a way that will still make sense when I'm just kind of talking and uh, flashing graphics on the screen.
2: What was revealed to me through the interviews was that both the paper and video were labor intensive projects. Students indicated that after they selected a piece, they started immediately working on it, and time ranged from 5 hours to 50 hours spent on the analysis alone depending on the type of piece they selected, and their background and facility with the musical analysis process. Students approached constructing a video script in different ways, but all of them cut their papers substantially and reworked their theses in order to compress their papers into ten minute videos. This usually meant that they could talk about one key point of their analyses in depth. The amount of time it took from creating the script to recording and editing the video varied but students tended to cite an average of two weeks to convert their papers to scripts, then a set of intense days as they recorded and edited their projects to perfection. Here are a couple of additional reflections. So did it help to start the paper early and to have to do the paper midway, and then you got some feedback on the paper, and then you could adjust? Was that helpful? Absolutely. First of all, I was—I needed to make sure I was talking about
0: the correct thing and then getting the feedback that I'm not wrong (laughs) and then making a video about it. So I was like a little more confident.
4: I'm I'm basically in full agreement. Like I thought it was nice to really have time to gather our ideas uh, um, because I'm also really like nervous. I don't like being recorded either. So it was nice to have a lot of on paper feedback, um, which made the process uh, to record much more of a breeze, you know, than I thought it was going to be.
2: In terms of technological tools, students gravitated toward the same types of hardware for recording, primarily smartphones, iPads, and laptops. Their selections of software varied, however, depending on what they were comfortable working with already. Their preferences included GarageBand, iMovie, Adobe Rush, Adobe Premiere Pro, screen and the animating software's Adobe Animate and VideoScribe. One thing that became evident is that three of the six students presenting as female preferred not to capture their actual faces on screen, opting instead for digital avatars or total video animation of their scripts. And This is a point I'll come back to in just a minute. As a result, I continue to think that a project like this must allow for flexibility and creativity when it comes to students filming their self-images. Fast forward to March 2022. Yes, the March after my seminar ended. While pulling together all the necessary research, IRB permissions, and interviews that I needed to assemble this podcast, I suddenly learned about an important, must-read, hot-off-the-press article. Shout out here to Chelsea Burns at UT Austin for the timely tip. I am talking about Julianne Grasso and Corey Arnold's co-authored chapter, Music Theory YouTube, which is now available in the Oxford Handbook of Public Music Theory. Side note. When I was trying to access this article, my institution did not currently have the subscription turned on for the resource, and Oxford no longer allows single subscribers to sign up. Our fine arts librarian, however, was able to get a copy through interlibrary loan within a day. This felt a little ironic, though, that a handbook on public music theory wasn't all that readily available to the public. In Music Theory YouTube, Grasso and Arnold examined the evolution and content of music theory videos on YouTube, They start with history and context of English language music theory content, providing a helpful timeline and also offering an insightful look at how the YouTube platform itself works. They offer set categories of music theory videos based upon how the creators sell their topics in order to build audiences and online community. And they discuss the complexities of being a music theorist on YouTube and identify the complications that come with YouTube, the Academy, and the democratization of music theory knowledge. This article should be the first point of reference for anyone attempting to implement the kind of video presentation experiment that I've outlined in this podcast or for those wishing to write articles related to YouTube content and music theory. Although Grossel and Arnold's chapter was not publicly available when I developed the project for my class, it validated, albeit retroactively, the rationale for the final presentation as video, something initially designed more upon hunch and instinct than proven research. Within their six categories of music theory videos on YouTube, Grasso and Arnold label the third category as analytical content, or what they define as videos in which, quote, the creator promises to use music theory to provide viewers with a deeper understanding of a piece or collection of music. Since audiences are generally most likely to click on analytical videos about music with which they are familiar, these videos tend to focus on popular songs, letting the music's popularity do the heavy lifting in drawing a crowd, end quote. Grosso and Arnold confirm that popular genres like jazz, pop, rock, and hip hop tend to get the most attention. But they clarify in a footnote that quote, analyses of European classical music are less common than analyses of popular music on Music Theory YouTube than in academic settings. But they do exist. End quote. In other words, there is still significant space on YouTube for more academic-type analyses of art music that can be packaged into middle-ground edutainment-style videos. Music theorists and their students, therefore, can make valuable contributions to public music theory by converting analysis papers in which many hours of time, research, and refinement have already been invested into videos and make them available for anyone who might enter related keywords into YouTube's search bar. Obtaining the Music Theory YouTube article also clarified something I had observed in the class projects. Remember when I mentioned that three of the class members use digital avatars or animating software for their presentations? Well, Grosso and Arnold address this within the context of marginalized creators and audience reaction. They write, quote, One sentiment analysis of the comment sections of science communication channels found that hosts who presented as women received significantly higher proportions of negative comments criticizing their work as well as significantly more harassment in the form of hostile or sexual comments and comments about their appearance. These factors may further serve to push women away from the field of educational YouTube in general and presumably music theory YouTube in specific as well. End quote. Although the students in my class were not worried about audience reactions since our YouTube channel was set to private, I think the students' choices to not show their self-image is rooted in this larger concern that Grosso and Arnold described. <laughs> There are plenty of difficulties with implementing this project, but I will lament just one at the moment, peer review, or lack thereof. Anyone can upload videos to YouTube that haven't been vetted or reviewed for accuracy of content, consistency of terminology, or verification of facts. This means that, as an instructor, if I want to illustrate a point or recommend something for students to watch as a supplement to their learning, then I have to spend time myself reviewing videos since there is no peer review process helping sift out the grain from the chaff. Sometimes this feels overwhelming, and I experienced a similar sentiment while in the throes of this video project. Because each student selected a different piece, I ideally needed to be an expert on all the works they were studying. In the middle of the semester, that felt like a nearly impossible task, and I failed to have adequate time to familiarize myself deeply enough with each work to the level that I could parallel what peer review does for academic publishing. This meant that I was providing feedback on the content, organization, and writing style that they presented in the papers, but I did not have expert level insight that two or three peer reviewers who are scholars on a singular piece or a composer could provide. Because of this I was reticent to have students make public the videos that we uploaded and we kept our YouTube channel setting on private. It is not that the class failed to do outstanding work, It is simply that I'm not 100% confident about the correctness and accuracy of every detail. So while I stand by the value of this experiment, I recognize its shortcomings. Would you want to do this again in a class, do you think, as your final? Yeah, I think so. I mean, since this
3: music theory is not my major, but if I, like, music, ethnomusicology class, if I want to make my my paper, my major paper, I would love to do that.
1: Not as a student? Yes, as a teacher assistant.
3: Oh, okay.
1: hmm like explain this, this is this, this is this. There's no, I mean, there's very low percentage of you making a mistake with the information because it is corroborated. And it's like a teaching set theory, for example, that we're talking about today. If I understand it correctly, I'm happy to make a video to explain it for people to learn. Sharing like my own perspective of an analysis. Even if, I mean, simple analysis is like, what if I'm wrong? I thought it was a really cool thing to do. It was different, like very different and, even though it was, it was difficult at the time, especially the time of year, but looking back on it, I'm really glad that I did it. And I'm really glad that I got the opportunity to, because I don't think I would have ever made myself do it uh, mm-hmm. ever before. And so I think it opens the door to not only doing that in the future, if I wanted to do maybe a YouTube channel where I talk maybe about jazz harmonies or, or mm-hmm. trombone or whatever. Uh, it also, um Makes it seem that like I could edit my own videos, like performance videos, or I could do it, it, it really like the possibilities are endless because mm-hmm. doing a project like this,
2: you know. Based upon the feedback given by students via their evaluations and recorded interviews, I believe YouTube video as final presentation was worthwhile overall and achieved the objectives that I had in mind. Knowing what I do now and armed with additional scholarship, I will likely do this process again in my graduate level special topic seminars. I do not want to replace all my graduate course in-class presentations with YouTube video development. There are too many important skills gained from speaking in person and answering questions extemporaneously in real time. But I think the Special Topics course is a place where I can successfully and convincingly insert this shift in both pedagogy and teaching tool. Given today's discussion, perhaps you and your students will be inspired to attempt something similar yourselves. That is, if you haven't already. I'd like to acknowledge several people who helped make this podcast possible. First, thanks to the creators of SMT Pod, and specifically Jenny Beavers, Megan Lyons, and Melissa Hoag for their guidance and peer review of this episode. I'm grateful to Paula Hickner, head of the Lucille Cottle Little Fine Arts Library at the University of Kentucky, who speedily procured the Music Theory YouTube article for me at the 11th hour. An enormous thank you to friend and mentor Richard Bass, whose pedagogy and scholarship informed the design of my Techniques and Transformation Special Topics Seminar, and I appreciate his taking the time to Zoom with the graduate students for an entire class session. This endeavor would have been impossible without the generous assistance of Aaron Hines, who served as a guest lecturer, assisted students with tech questions, spent several hours recording me reading the script, and who primarily edited and produced the episode. And finally, to the graduate students in the 19th Century Music Seminar, thank you for your support and your willing participation in this experiment. Your enthusiasm for the class and project inspired me to see this adventure all the way through from inception to completion. Thanks for taking this journey with me.
0: Visit our website smt pod.org for supplemental materials related to this episode. And join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at smtpod. SMT's pod theme music was written by Zheng Chang Lu, with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening!